0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Whenever we read the letters that made it into the New Testament, we are quite literally reading someone else's mail. And as all of us who have ever snuck around and opened someone else's mail know, little context is always helpful. First Corinthians, which we hear from this morning, was written to a young fledgling mission church that Paul had planted in the city of Corinth in Greece. The original audience for this letter, of course, would probably not be thrilled to know that they are famous about 2,000 years later for reasons that are not all positive. The Corinthians had some issues. Paul is writing to them not to lay out broad theological principles or to share with them timeless nuggets of the faith. He's writing to correct error, gently if possible, but directly nonetheless. Paul was a pastor as well as an evangelist, and this is a pastoral letter in which he is focused on addressing pressing needs in the Christian community. We know that Corinth was a prosperous trading town on an isthmus located on the road between two ports, one on the Aegean Sea and one, of course, on the Ionian Sea. And it was common for goods to be offloaded at one port and then carted across the isthmus to Corinth and then onto a new ship in the second port. So Corinth was a city for the upwardly mobile and the adventurous, people who wanted to invest in new ventures and travel. And when Paul planted the church there around the year 51, it was a boom town. The letter was written probably between 53 and 55. So Paul plants the church and then goes away just long enough for things to get a little messy. (laughs) This letter was prompted by reports that Paul had received about squabbling among church members, as well as some questions they had about how to live as Christians. It's important for us to remember that at this point in time, every church was a house church. You think Pulsbo Village is small, but imagine what it would have been like if the size of the Christian community was limited by the size of your home. The size of the church was held down by the largest group you could fit in your house for a meal. So the largest villa would have room for about 30 or so people. And the church, if it was of any significant size, probably had to meet in a couple different locations around the city. So you can see where the trouble starts. House church communities developing different practices, following different leaders in their different gathering places, would probably have had a hard time figuring out how to get along with one another over time. And there is, of course, one other element involved here, which is that the Corinthian church had an incredibly high level of socioeconomic diversity. We know that because of the names of the folks that Paul writes to, This church was probably not just a gathering of the poorest of the poor, the way that we think of the early church often, but that Paul had recruited some wealthy and well-born members of Corinthian society into planting this church. Some of them were servants, some were prosperous heads of household, and others landed somewhere in between. So if this kind of diversity in a voluntary association is rare in our own time, it was also highly unusual in the ancient world, and that's where the tension starts for the Corinthians. Some in the church were suggesting that there might need to be a division at the common meal that they shared together with separate tables for rich members and poor members divided by their level of contribution to the church and to the meal itself. The haves and the have nots were starting to divide along these fault lines and they were threatening to tear the church apart The Corinthians, of course, were fine with this and were ready to pick sides and scrap it out. But Paul was not satisfied. He just refused to accept that this division between the members of the church had to be tolerated. Because if the church is God's mission sent into the world to fulfill God's purposes, then these disagreeable Christians needed to resolve their differences and learn to love one another better for the sake of the gospel. So Paul is writing a pastoral letter to this fractured little church, not intending that you and I should read it 2,000 years and 6,000 miles separating us from them, and yet here we are poking our noses into their messy little situation to see what we can learn from the bad Corinthian example. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ Paul says, now this is a clever rhetorical trick. It was commonplace in the ancient world for public speakers to argue that human society was like a body, and that for the body to be healthy, every person had to fulfill their proper role in society. This argument was routinely used for justifying the class system, for keeping members of the lower lower class in the Roman world subservient to the upper class. Whenever there was a famine or a slave revolt or some kind of social unrest, this argument would be rolled out to remind everybody that there was a natural social order that had to be maintained and that rebellion against that order would only lead to trouble for everybody. So you can imagine the higher status members of the Corinthian congregation nodding along at this point. But here, Paul has marshaled the argument so that he can turn it on its head because he closes that sentence with, so it is with Christ. That shift would have made ears perk up. We may have been expecting Paul at this point to reference the church. The church is the gathering place of all the members into one body, each with a role to play. But Paul instead ties the union and the cooperation of the members to Jesus Christ himself. It's obvious why this would be a stronger connection. It's because even in the early decades AD, people were fond of grumbling about church politics and their fellow members, but who dares to complain about Jesus? Paul blurs the line between metaphor and reality here for our benefit because to describe the church as the body of Christ is of course a rich image that we're all familiar with, but it's also the truth. The church is not just a human organization, but a body brought to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, binding all believers into a relationship with the crucified and resurrected Jesus, and also with one another. This is a truth that actually can only really be adequately described through the use of metaphor. We don't have the language to capture this relationship between Christ and the Church without it. And that's why there's so many different metaphors for the relationship between Jesus and the Church in the New Testament. The bride of Christ, the family of God, the household of God, the temple of God built with living stones, with Christ as the foundation and the cornerstone, and the Holy Spirit indwelling it. All of those images are trying to explain what remains a mysterious but beautiful truth. We have been made one in Christ, whether we feel it all the time or not. Paul goes on. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Now this is what Paul believes about the church deep down in his marrow. That the gift of the Holy Spirit makes the church possible and visible in the world by joining all the members into one body that cannot function without the cooperation of each member. Now in the human body, there's a necessity for diversity, of course, because each and every part has a crucial function that only it can fill. The body is differentiated by God's design to fulfill God's purpose. If the human body was just made up of eyes or of ears, it would be both grotesque and helpless. And in that diversity, Each part of our body has a worth and an importance that assists in the functioning of the whole and is necessary. That interdependence means that the higher, seemingly more important members of the body cannot scorn the lower, seemingly less important members. And in fact, as Paul says, those parts of the body that seem weakest are treated with greater respect and modesty. I need not go into more explicit examples. But every part of the body is fully a part of the body. No part can claim superiority over any other. No part can ignore any other. No part can function without all the others. And that is, of course, as true for the church as it is for our human bodies. The Holy Spirit is speaking through this scripture to remind us that we are united and that we need one another. Not because we're good and decent church people and we like to be nice, but because we have been called together by God for a purpose that is impossible for any of us to accomplish independently. Have you ever watched a group of people try to get through a, a riving, a roaring river rapid in a raft? Whitewater rafts are built to be durable, but if every person is paddling at different intensities and directions, Even the most well-guided, well-built raft will flip. And I have to tell you, as a veteran of more than a handful of youth ministry rafting outings, there are many hilarious and interesting ways that a team of intelligent, Christ-loving people can get into a rubber boat together with their little helmets and their life vests and their paddles and their general sense of sunny optimism and fail spectacularly. A raft where every individual has their own plan and their own agenda is destined to crash on the rocks and a few people are going in the water. But when those individuals work as a team, even the most dangerous rocks can be safely navigated. That's why there are these prosperous rafting companies that will let you put six 13-year-old boys in a raft together because if they'll just listen to the guide, they're gonna all get out okay. But if they decide to do their own thing, it's gonna be very, very funny. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it is with the church. On the Corinthian Isthmus in 55 AD, just as much as here on the Kitsap Peninsula in 2019. This body needs all the members cooperating if we are going to survive much less fulfill God's purpose for us. There is no other way for the church to go forward. Now, in our world, divisions are all too commonplace. You only need to turn on the television news for as long as you can stand to watch it or pick up a newspaper on any given day to see that society seems to be fracturing more sharply all the time. And those divisions seem to be natural for the body politic, but they are intolerable for the body of Christ. We need one another because we have actually been bound to one another by God. And just like a human body, the church cannot hope to function, much less to thrive if some regard themselves as more important than others or if some members believe that they are weak and unnecessary or if a stratified class system develops that divides us from one another there are no second-class Christians just as there are no second-class parts of the human body we all need one another younger and older lifetime members and first-time visitors, women and men, lay and ordained, toddlers and grandparents, we are only the church. We are only the body of Christ when we are united and working together for the health of the whole body. Furthermore, we need one another's various gifts of service and hospitality and leadership and prayer and music and many, many others to put the full beauty of the body of Christ on display in the world. There is a place for each and every one of us to share our gifts for the sake of the body of Christ. In our diversity, we are also dependent on one another and on Christ the one who has called us together as his disciples. And when we are tempted to divide the body of Christ along any lines other than faithfulness to him, we are repeating the error of the Corinthian church. We ignore the clear teaching of scripture and we place ourselves in grave danger. We must turn away from this temptation and cling to Christ and to one another At the close of this section, with his pastor's heart on full display, Paul gently reminds his readers, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. If one member of Christ is suffering, we should stand with them and suffer as well. If one member of Christ is filled with joy, we should stand with them and all be joyful because we are united to one another at the deepest imaginable level by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we must remain together in the midst of all circumstances. It seems to me that this is truer now perhaps than ever before, that in the unique situation we find ourselves, this is the vocation of the body of Christ. To show the world through our witness in a time when we are so easily divided that Christ is united. That we are united with him and with one another by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what we can all offer as one body following our one Lord. Amen.